When I was in high school, uh, there was this table that all the jocks and the popular kids would sit at right in the middle of the, uh, of the cafeteria. And it was all guys at this one table. And so when I was a sophomore and a junior, I really wanted to sit at this table my senior year. So first day of my senior year, cafeteria, I was one of the first people there. I sat right at that table. And some other guys showed up, they sat at the table. But as the days and the weeks went on, I realized this is probably not the place for me. As conversations changed and the, some of them were inappropriate and just, I was very uncomfortable. As I looked around the, the cafeteria, I saw other tables where I had friends who were seated and I was much closer friends with them than some of the people I was seated there with. So I just became more awkward and so I felt very alone and I needed to go and try to find another place to sit. I love to send a big welcome out to everyone watching online, to everyone at the Christ Church of Amherst, and to all of our friends that are Wilmington, Watertown, East Lexington, Foxborough, and here in our Lexington campuses. It's great to be with you. Well, like many of you last week, I listened to Pastor Brian's powerful sermon on transformation from Romans 12, 2, which says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then I went home and was thinking all about what transformation really might look like for me. And I turned on a couple of sporting events over the course of the evening. And during those events, a commercial came on multiple times that promised a very different vision of what transformation looks like compared to what we heard in the morning. And the commercial I'm talking about is Apple's new commercial for its iWatch 4. If you haven't seen it, it begins with uh, a man who's sitting on his couch uh, drinking a hot beverage when suddenly a clone of himself emerges wearing an iWatch 4 and it tells him to stand up. So this man and his clone head outside where they encounter another version of himself. This one time, this one saying, hey, don't just walk, let's pick up the pace a little bit. Then they meet another clone who says, well, don't just kind of jog, let's start to run a little faster. And again, they encounter yet another clone who is now saying, let's sprint to the finish. Let's go as fast as we can all the way to the California coastline. And while these guys are now catching their breath, still another cloned version comes out of nowhere, starts to sprint right toward the ocean, dives in. There's a great shot of the eye watch underwater showing that it is waterproof, which is pretty cool. And I did a little more research on it. It actually can heat the water that's right around you. So if you're in cold Atlantic waters, you can experience a jacuzzi-like uh, whole environment. And then the last uh, image here of, of this commercial, its tagline is revealed. And here's what it says. There's a better you in you. There's a better you in you. Now, at first, I really admired this commercial because it uh, was creative. It was really well executed. It had an encouraging message to be a little bit more physically fit. And that's what the iWatch might be able to help you do. But as uh, I saw it two or three more times, my admiration turned to annoyance. And then as I saw it at least another time after that, my annoyance turned to anger. And why was that? Because not only did this 
commercial overpromised what its product could sell or deliver, but because it is perpetuating what I believe is one of the most destructive ideas in our world today. It's an idea that at first seems to be very harmless from the surface and encouraging, but it's a deceptive idea that has greater potential to deform us than to transform us. So let's take a little closer look at analyzing this ad at what its explicit message is and then what it's saying a little more implicitly. Explicitly, Apple is contending that there's a better you in you, just a better version of you waiting to be unearthed. Uh, Now, while there's a ring of truth to this because we are all made in God's image and so we are vested within us a a great potential to do good to those around us, but also within us is that we are inheritors of a deeply sinful, ruinous nature that has the potential to bring about great harm to others, to the world, and to ourselves. And so while it's possible that there is a better you in you, it's also just as likely and very possible that there is an even worse worse you in you than there already is. Aren't you glad you came to church today to hear that? Well, the more implicit message might be even more dangerous. And I believe the implicit message is this, that you can be a better you all by yourself. You don't need others. You don't need a running buddy or a workout group or a group to support you or a group for you to support. You only need yourself and a nice little I watch for. So go after what you think is going to make you happy and don't let anything or anyone stand in your way. Well, take just a moment to look around you. Take a little survey of people that you know in your world. Does it appear that life, that this way of life is actually making any of us more happy? A few months back, I heard a speaker talk about how in about a six-month stretch, he welcomed guests from about five or six different countries, guests who were all making their first visit to the United States. After a few days, He asked them, what are your first impressions of America? And without fail, every person said, everyone around looks so lonely. So lonely. See, this pursuit of doing whatever your desires uh, want you to go after, I believe, is what's making us so lonely And I believe this pursuit is what sociologist Robert Bella describes as, and it's a very dangerous pursuit. He calls it expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. I think it's what's making us so lonely. He kind of describes it as a narrative or a deeply entrenched pattern of this world, to kind of borrow Paul's language, that tells us we must discover, not just we should, but we must discover our deepest desires and longings and then do all we can to realize them, regardless of constraint or opposition, or regardless of the impact that this will have on other people's lives. Now, positively, this narrative helps us to realize that we don't simply need to accept our lot in life, but we can pursue more. And that's one of the great blessings of living in a land of opportunity like we find ourselves in. But much more problematic is that this approach to life assumes that we know what we want. It assumes that we know what we want. 
that our inner desires are actually totally coherent and harmonious and never contradictory. But if we listen to our feelings long enough and we listen regularly enough, I think we know that our emotions and our desires send very mixed messages that can't really be trusted. This is no way to stake your life on to just do whatever you feel like. Yet expressive individualism is what I really believe the Apple product uh, and Apple and companies like them are really trying to sell. And it is waging war, I believe, on belonging in our world today and even in the church. It's creating isolation among communities that were once tight-knit. It is starting to distance family members from one another, even when they're living under the same roof. And it is separating people from the author and the source of ultimate happiness. And that is God himself. Expressive individualism tells us that we are our own gods. There isn't just a better you in you, there's a semblance of a little God in you as well. And all you have to do to set that God free is to just reach up and take a little bite from that fruit. Maybe it's an apple from that tree. (laughs) Or better yet, just buy the iWatch 4. Well, how about that for a long kind of in-your-face introduction here this morning? Let me just make a quick disclaimer. I am a user of multiple Apple products. So if you are sitting here trying to disclose your iWatch that you're currently wearing, you can feel free. iWatch users are very welcomed here today. But the reason I went to such lengths to, to... talk about this ad is because I believe if we are truly hoping to experience and to extend true belonging, which is what we are focusing on all fall here as a church, then we have to know what we're up against. And I believe we are up against the destructive force that goes by the name of expressive individualism. It is most often the great enemy of authentic community. And without a community that we can count on, without a community that we feel like we belong to, we will continue to live lonely, anxious, unsatisfied lives. But to counter this, today we're going to continue to look at Paul's letter to the Romans to capture what a vision of a life-giving community looks like in a very self-centered world. Instead of putting the best version of me uh, or pursuing the best version of me that we can be, we'll see that we should instead cultivate the best version of we, or us to be grammatically correct, but we sounds better. And to do that, we're going to need to first realign our perspective. Secondly, we'll need to reshape our identity. And then thirdly, we will need to repurpose the gifts that God has given to each and every one of us. So let's pick up where we left off last week. Romans chapter 12, we'll start with verse 3 and read through verse 8. We'll read that all together and then kind of go verse by verse. And as you look at these verses, let's see how the transformed life that God desires for us is best experienced in community together. This is the very word of God. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned 
For as in one body we have many members, and not all the members have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ. And individually, we are members of one another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, prophecy in proportion to faith, ministry in ministering, the teacher in teaching, the exhorter in exhortation, the giver in generosity, the leader in diligence, the compassionate in cheerfulness. Notice how many times Paul uses the word we here in this text. So to build a community that overcomes individualism, we need to first realign our perspective. Realign our perspective. Paul begins by saying, for by the grace given to me. Now this grace is God's action in Paul's life that calls him to become an apostle, one who is sent out to build the church. And just as God's grace was active in calling Paul, God's grace is at work in you, calling you to build up the body of Christ in a unique way as well. He says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment. Now, to think of oneself with sober judgment means that we interpret ourselves rightly. We see ourselves for who we are and for who we're not. One of my all-time favorite graduation speeches was delivered at Wellesley High School just about six years ago by David McCullough Jr. And the title of his graduation speech was, You Are Not Special. It's really good if you haven't watched it. And essentially, he's trying to say what the Apostle Paul is saying right here. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. See, one of the best ways to ensure that we don't fall prey to thinking more highly of ourselves than we, than we might is to get married. Actually, sorry, that's not what's written here. Um, <laughs> I said the best way to do that is actually by surrounding ourselves with a community of loving people who are kind enough to help reveal to us the blind spots that we all have. Because we're all prone to this. And part of ensuring that we don't think too highly of ourselves, of course, naturally means that we don't think about ourselves anytime we are given the chance. Let's just do a quick mental inventory if we can right now. I want you to imagine that there's three kind of categories or buckets that your thoughts can kind of fall into. The first is for God, the second is for others, and the last is for me. How much of your free mental space, like when you can think about whatever you think about, how much of your thoughts are going to God and his church? How much of your thinking is going toward others? Or how much of your thinking is being directed toward me. And I don't just mean me, I mean you. I'm flattered, but I mean, I mean, I mean you. I would encourage you over the next week as just a spiritual exercise to really think about how much you think about yourself and where your thoughts really go. Now, let me confess. I'm guessing for a lot of you today, like my only child self included, that there is a disproportionate amount of free mental space that's going toward thinking about yourself. Well, how can we correct this? Well, Paul goes on to say here in verse three, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but think with sober judgment. And here's this next phrase, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now this phrase, 
according to the measure of faith that God assigned is one of those like biblical phrases that we can just kind of gloss over, think we understand it, yet miss its intended meaning. So let's look at it a little bit more closely here today. Is Paul suggesting that there's a different amount of faith that is given to some people than to others? And when I mean faith, I mean trust in God, trust that we would believe that God is who he is and that he's going to do all that he said he's going to do. Are there different levels of faith that people are given? Like are some people given like a seven, eight, or nine on the scale of faith, while others are only given like a whopping two or three? Well, if that was true, then you might have one of the best spiritual excuses for not doing what God calls you to do. Let's just say God says to go love that difficult neighbor or to perhaps give that extra generous gift or to talk to that coworker about Christ and sign them up to go to Alpha. But you think, well, I'm really only like a two or three on the scale of faith. We'll leave that up for the nines and tens to take care of all that evangelistic generosity kind of work. Obviously, I don't think this interpretation sounds quite right. So alternatively, some commentators have suggested that this phrase, measure of faith, should be understood instead as standard of faith. The standard of our faith that we would measure our lives against. And who or what would that standard be? Come on, Sunday school graduates. Jesus, right? Jesus is to be the standard or measure of, uh, of our lives and not each other. Let me try and illustrate this a moment. I think we have the tendency to think wrongly about ourselves is largely the result of thinking horizontally by comparing ourselves with one another. Let's just say that this is me right here, and this kind of stacks up to be you over here, and I measure up a little bit higher than, than you stack up. And so what's going to be the natural result is I kind of look down on you. This is going to lead to pride in my own life. That's what this kind of horizontal uh, thinking will do. But let's just say I see somebody who's a lot cooler than me, a lot smarter, more dynamic, funnier, whatever, uh, more influential, and, and I start to compare my life with this person. I'm looking kind of horizontally in an upward direction. Probably the result of what is going to happen in my life is I'm going to be feeling maybe envious. I might feel jealous. I might, I might feel um, resentful. Nothing healthy is going to come by looking horizontally in these directions. And not only am I going to be thinking less of myself, but I'll actually probably be thinking more about myself because I'm going to be thinking about what I lack in comparison to what other people have. So there's nothing really good that comes out of comparing our lives with others. So if we want to stop looking in this horizontal direction and measuring ourselves in this fashion, the key to doing that is not to try and stop comparing ourselves with others. The antidote to this is to compare ourselves with something better, with someone better. And that person that we should be comparing ourselves as the standard of our faith is ultimately Christ. Christ is so much greater, so much more loving, so much more sacrificial and beautiful. He's lived such a better life and continues to than we ever could on our own. And see, what happens is we start to measure ourselves against Christ 
Christ and we see this big gap that exists here, the differences in each other are almost hard to recognize. The gap here is so large that just seeing, oh, I'm a little bit better than this person or a little bit worse off than this person, it almost just vanishes. We can hardly tell the difference whatsoever. And so my friends, instead of keeping score on how others are doing, realign your perspective on Jesus. Keep your mind immersed in the gospels. Really imagine how Jesus might live his life if he were you. And then try to close the gap between how he would have you live if he was you and how you are actually living. And that is the best way that you can see yourselves rightly. Because only Jesus, of course, is the standard of life. He's the giver of life. And he is the only one who can bring out the better you in you. Can I get an amen from anyone? Amen. Amen. So once our perspective is realigned to be focusing on Christ and not others, uh, to compare ourselves with others, we are now ready for our identity to be reshaped from an individually, uh, individualistically minded identity to a more communal one. Paul goes on to say this in verse four. For as in one body we have many members, and not all members have the same function, so we who are many in Christ... And individually, we are members of one another. Now, this is one of the Bible's most familiar and memorable metaphors about what our life together looks like. In the body of Christ, there is unity, there is diversity, and there is mutuality. Christ's body, although it might look like many separate churches and separate entities, is really one. Even though Christ's body in our day and age that's so polarized uh, over political issues might feel more separate than ever before, we have to believe and trust that Christ is holding the church all together as one, and he will never stop doing that. But unity does not mean the same thing as uniformity. We don't all have to be exactly cloned copies of one another, like the Apple commercial. Because in Christ's body, there is remarkable diversity. There's generational diversity, ethnic diversity, geographical diversity, socio-political diversity, vocational diversity, you name it. See, what makes the body of Christ diverse is what I believe makes the body of Christ so beautiful. At one of our past fire young adult retreats, I'll never forget this young woman standing in the back of the room, just observing what was being uh, done as people were hanging out at Camp Berea in one of the meeting rooms there. And she looked so wide-eyed that I wasn't sure if something was wrong with her. And so I went up and just said, hey, is, is everything okay? And then she said this, I've just never seen anything like this. The only explanation for why this ragtag group of people is having so much fun together has to be Jesus. There's no other explanation because why would this guy be hanging out with that dude? Why would this girl be laughing at that woman's jokes? The only explanation can be Jesus. How awesome is that? I never forgot that moment. So in Christ's body, there is unity, there is diversity, and there is also mutuality. One translation of verse 5 says that we belong to each other. There's that word, belong. That means that when one member hurts, every member hurts along with it. When one member celebrates, we all rejoice. We have an inseparable, interrelated, 
interdependent relationship with one another. What you do or don't do, it impacts all of us. Thus, your identity is not simply me, but we. We in Christ. Now, while some of us can recall times in church where it really felt like this unity, diversity, and mutuality was, was really at work, it's probably a lot easier for us to think of examples when, and seasons of church life that it didn't. So why might belonging of this nature break down so readily within the church community? Well, I believe the reason has to do with expressive individualism. In our efforts to fulfill our greatest longings and potential, we can easily approach church with a consumeristic mentality, thinking, what's in it for me? How can I get my needs met here? How can this community of people help me get to where I want to go? And as long as those things are happening, we're pretty happy. But as soon as that stops happening, we can start to get pretty angry, and we can even just get up and walk out the door. Sometimes that might be the right thing to do. That might be what God's calling you to do. But more often than not, I don't think that is the solution. And why is that? Because when, one, when members of the body scatter, the whole body is impacted more than anybody can imagine. And ironically, we will never have our needs met or truly grow spiritually if we are too preoccupied on having our needs met. So here's a principle I want us to make sure we learn today. The more you prioritize me, the less you will experience community. The more you prioritize me, and don't think of we, the, more you're, the, the less, I should say, you're going to experience community. And not only so, but the more you prioritize me, the less we will experience community. Because what one part does, it affects the whole so for you to experience a greater sense of true belonging, you cannot see yourself merely from an individualistic kind of standpoint, but you need to understand that your identity is a we and not simply a me. Now to try and illustrate what this best looks like, I'd love for us just to take a little moment to think about the nature of God. One of the most telling descriptions of what God is like is the word Trinity. It signifies that God is one being in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now, while trying to fully understand this is beyond our rational capabilities, an aspect of the Trinity that we can understand is that God is relational. Within himself, God is, has, and always will experience a perfect, loving relationship. Out of that love, this world was created. God didn't create the world to get love. He created the world to give and share in his love. And in this loving relational nature of God, the members of the Trinity don't focus on trying to get glory from each other, but they instead want to give glory to one another. To glorify another means to unconditionally serve them. To unconditionally serve them. Not because we're getting anything out of it, but just because we love and appreciate who the other person is. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity characterizes this loving relationship of the Trinity as a dance, 
I love that. A dance. The persons in the Trinity exalt each other, uh, not themselves. They defer to one another. And within the interior life of God, the persons of the Trinity overflow with such a high regard for the others. And because the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are continually, ceaselessly giving glory to one another, God is infinitely, profoundly happy. It's an amazing way to think about God, that he is infinitely, profoundly happy. And God wants us to experience the same kind of happiness that he continually, eternally experiences. But the way to experience that happiness is not by trying to fulfill our deepest desires or having our needs met, but to follow this pattern and dance of God himself by focusing on glorifying others through a self-giving love. That's how we can get in on the very life and the very dance of God. And this aspect of God's nature is what should characterize the entire body of Christ. So understanding who God is not only helps realign our perspective, not only does it help reshape our identity, but lastly, it gives us a vision for repurposing our gifts that God has given us. And they are used not just to fulfill ourselves, but our gifts are given to build up the body. Let's look at these last verses here as we kind of wrap things up. Verses six through eight. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Prophecy in proportion to faith. Ministry in ministering. And teacher in teaching. The exhorter in exhortation. The giver in generosity. The leader in diligence. The compassionate in cheerfulness. Now, this list of spiritual gifts that uh, Paul offers is not meant to be exhaustive. In a couple other places in his letters, he also lists these different spiritual gifts. They could number as many as 15 or 20. Some people have counted up. So rather than describing all these individually, I believe the bigger message that Paul is trying to communicate is that every part of the body is for every other part in the body. Your gifts aren't for me, but they are for we, for us. Every part exists for every other part, not for itself. Now, I think identifying a spiritual gift, and and all of us have received these, is an essential practice to do in the Christian faith. And here at Grace, we would encourage you to take our Roots course, which has a couple sessions specifically designed to do that. But while it's really vital for us to know our spiritual gifts, one of the dangers or unintended consequences of thinking too much about our spiritual gifts is that we can choose to only want to do things both inside and outside the church that use our gifts or kind of hit our sweet spot. Because oftentimes we love to do what we are most gifted at. And when it comes to choosing what we're going to do or not do, the light, one of the life is good sort of slogans, I think, shapes us more than we realize. Their line, and it sounds really good, it's like a big sermon kind of idea, but it's do what you love and love what you do. Have you seen that before? Do what you love and love what you do. Now, as compelling as that sounds, in the body of Christ, we should not merely strive to do what we love, but we need to be resolute in doing what we must for the greater good of the body. Serve where the needs are the most significant. Don't use your gifts simply to build a better version of me, but to help Christ's body, the church, become the best version of we. That's what we were made for because we belong to one another. 
See, I think the reason that God has gifted us to, and gifted us and given us a part to play in the body of Christ is not simply for our self-fulfillment, but for the betterment of the body. And as we live this way, in a way in which we put serving ahead of, of receiving, giving instead of getting, we will be able to step into this very dance of God and our lives will be patterned after his instead of the patterns of this world and we will live more joy-filled lives as a result. So finally, I'd just like for you to think back at a time or two in your life where you really felt most alive where you felt that you were a part of something bigger than just yourself. You were doing something that really mattered and made a difference. Odds are you weren't alone, but you were probably with a team of others, a group of people. Maybe it was a band or a missions team or a work group tackling a really audacious project. And you were able to do something as you rallied together, uh, not trying to fulfill yourselves, but to do something bigger and you gave your time and energy and blood and sweat and tears to join others to achieve something that you could never do alone, but that we could only do together. And that is the invitation that God is giving to every one of us every single week to be the church. Not just to come to church, but to lay our interests aside so that we might belong to one another for the incredible purpose of extending and expanding the work that Jesus began here and now. It won't be easy. It's not always going to feel that energizing. But as we diligently stay with it and stick to one another, we'll experience something that far transcends the empty promises of expressive individualism. We will find ourselves immersed in the very life of God. And when that occurs, true belonging exists. We can all get a taste of that. So to sum up what we've said today, we experience true belonging as we remains greater than me. We experience true community and belonging as we remains greater than me. And we can remain greater than me when we realign our perspective on Christ instead of comparing ourselves with one another. We remains greater than me as we reshape our identity from seeing ourselves merely individualistically, but instead more communally as members of the same body of Christ who belong to each other. And we can remain greater than me as we repurpose our gifts for the betterment of the body instead of merely for our own self-fulfillment. Because the more you prioritize we, the less you will be held captive to the empty promises of simply living for me. There is a better you out there, but it's not merely found in you. There's a better you in us. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for what a good and loving savior you, savior you are. We thank you that you are inviting us by your grace through your death on the cross from your resurrection from the grave to get in on the very loving way of life that you as the Trinity experience. I pray, God, that we would turn from our self-centered, selfish ways renew our minds so that we don't buy into these lies that the media and marketers in the world continually throws at us. Instead, may we be transformed as we become 
key members of your church and your community. So help us, Lord, not to come to be served, but to serve, to lay ourselves uh, aside so that we might build up the church and that your world might experience your love and that you might be glorified in and through each and every one of us. So I pray for your spirit's empowerment to enable us to do this as we leave here today. In Christ's name, everyone pray together. Amen.